One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signalled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Well, in this sermon series, we're looking how our culture, our society, inevitably shapes and influences who we are as Christians. How the way in which the world in which we live thinks, the values that it has, and how that impinges and inevitably shapes how we follow Jesus in Scotland, in Edinburgh, in 2019. If you've got a smartphone like this, if you've got one that isn't made by Apple, it probably uses an operating system called Android. Android was developed by Google, and to look up and find out more about Android, I had to use Google to find out more about Android. But did you know that Android sends over 11 billion notifications to its one billion users every single day. 11 billion notifications to its one billion users every day. So like me, you will be repeatedly inundated with suggestions. Suggestions as to what you could buy. Suggestions as to where you could shop. Suggestions, sometimes bizarre suggestions, where you think, why do you think I would be interested in that based on my history? And it's sometimes slightly scary. Earlier this year, Libby and I were on the way to a conference down south in Derbyshire, and we were discussing the the various merits or not of the self-service counters at Tesco's as opposed to Sainsbury's. You'll be aware that as clergy, we engage in very heavy, deep theological discussions. 
And uh, Libby was explaining how proficient she had become recently at Sainsbury's. Now she was quite a dab hand at the Sainsbury's self-service checkout. And I, in awe, was gobsmacked uh, sitting opposite her on the train and said, I'm not sure I'm quite up to Sainsbury's. I'm just getting to cope with Tesco's. Three minutes later, a notification appeared on my phone suggesting that I might like to start to use the Sainsbury's self-service checkout. They are listening. They are watching. They know where we live. And someone has said that in the screen age, our devices are actually the new disciple-makers because they're suggesting how we think. They're suggesting how we spend our time. They're suggesting how we live. And the question is that if these are the new disciple-makers, who are they suggesting that we follow? And how are they suggesting that? Listen to these chilling words from Reed Hastings, the chief executive officer of Netflix. He said this, At Netflix, we're competing for our customers' time, so our competitors include Snapchat, YouTube, and sleep. That's quite chilling, isn't it? I love Netflix. I love The Crown. I love Star Trek on Netflix. I'm not knocking Netflix. But their competitors are Snapchat, YouTube, and sleep. They want you, they want me to watch Netflix rather than sleep. And they're quite successful at it from talking to people. The reality is that you and I live in a culture where we don't shop to live, but increasingly lots of people in our society live to shop. The average American where I've just been for two weeks on holiday apparently gets 50 notifications a day on their smartphone. At this time of year, it's traditional, often in churches like this, to have what we used to call a harvest festival service. Well, the difference now in our culture, in our society, is that we have become the harvest. Data about us, where we shop, where we go, how we speak, who we speak to, that data is being harvested and sold by different companies. And it's so easy for that shopping mentality, that consumer mentality, to affect how we think about church and following Jesus. So increasingly, people, when they come to a church like P's and G's, will ask questions like, what's in it for me? Are they going to meet my needs? Now, there's nothing wrong with those questions in and of themselves. If you're a new student, if you're looking around, if you are literally church shopping at the moment as a student who is new to Edinburgh or trying a different church, that's okay to ask those questions. What's not okay is to ask just those questions or to start to think, to get in our heads, that following Jesus or church is primarily about what we will get and what we will receive and how our needs are going to be met. And so for many people over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, the metaphors that we find in the New Testament of being a disciple of Jesus that are more about things like being an athlete 
or being a soldier or being a servant have increasingly been replaced by a metaphor of being a consumer, of being a shopper. Tesco, ergo, some. I shop, therefore I am. That's how often, if we're honest, and again, if we're being completely honest, some of the modern worship songs also reinforce that, and just in the way in which the 18th, 19th century hymn writers were influenced by their culture, not always in a good way, we are influenced by our culture, and that informs the songs that we sing and the songs that are written. How will this church meet my needs? It's been said that 40 or 50 years ago, Apparently, the part of the church that we belong to, the evangelical part, we spend a lot of time thinking about, is it true? People would write books demonstrating that the Christian faith is true. In the 80s and the 90s, it moved to a sort of, well, does it work? Does the Christian faith work for people? Now, increasingly, in the noughties and this decade, people are asking the question, not is it true, not does it work, but what's in it for me? It's a needs-based thing. And we get into this way of thinking that following Jesus is actually about Jesus meeting our needs. Jesus doing what we want. Jesus conforming to what we think is reasonable rather than allowing him to set the agenda. It's the direct opposite of Jesus who said these words, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I remember John Ortberg many years ago saying that he could never understand some church leaders being jealous of other church leaders where their churches were growing. John said, it's very simple. They're just getting more people to die to themselves than you are. And we recognize that that isn't actually how most church leaders think because it's not how most Christians think. That actually following Jesus is not fundamentally about who we are but it's about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Christ. The reason that we started to think like this is that's the way our world thinks. That's the way our society thinks. That's the way our culture talks. In July, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, gave a TED talk in Edinburgh. And she said that maybe thinking about how successful or prosperous a nation is should be determined not just by wealth, which was the product of the Enlightenment, but it should be determined by two other things, health and happiness. Wealth, health, and happiness. Tim Keller reckons there are seven popular narratives in our culture of which the top three, he says, are identity, who we are, freedom, the freedom to be who we want to be, and fundamentally, happiness. We want to feel happy. And so therefore, in the church, we talk more about happiness than we do holiness. Holiness seems quite an outdated old-fashioned term. Listen to the words of theologian Scott McKnight, who says this, contemporary Christianity has increasingly displaced the Bible as its foundation for knowing what to think and how to live, and supplanted it with experience, desire, and preference. In other words, it has surrendered its heart to personal freedom. And if we're honest, that's the way lots of people in church think. 
not just this church. It's what is in here, how we feel, rather than what's in here. And if what's in here conflicts or contradicts what's in here, then many of us would rather go with what's in here, rather than what's in here. We've surrendered to the idea of personal freedom. But that's the opposite of New Testament discipleship. Look at that incident that Claire read for us from Luke chapter 5 a few moments ago. If I'm honest, I have, I think all the time that I've been a Christian, have thought that this incident where Jesus encounters Simon and tells him to put the, the nets out and to, to go fishing, even though they've caught nothing overnight, that this occurs right at the start of the ministry of Jesus. Actually, if you look at the sort of chronology, the timeline, this occurs about a year into the public life of Jesus. So, Simon has actually been around Jesus for about 12 months when this incident occurs. Jesus has been calling people to follow him for about 12 months. His popularity has grown and the crowds flock to him. And so, we read in Luke chapter 5 and verse 1, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. So, lots of people are there, and the crowd's starting to get bigger, and they're starting to push Jesus back towards the sea. And Jesus is getting maybe a bit slightly freaked out by this, and turns around and sees two boats in the, in the bay. And he asks Simon, that he knows owns one of them, if he can borrow one of the boats as a sort of floating pulpit. So, he, he gets in the boat, and apparently the sea, uh, in Capernaum, this particular part, that there are these very steep inlets or bays. So Jesus puts out from the shore a bit and uses the natural acoustics of both the water and the rocks, the cliffs, to, to speak and to teach um, the crowd that have come to listen to him as he speaks about the, the kingdom of God and what it's like to live life with God and what it's like to live life on God's terms. Once he's finished... And he's seen that there are some nets which significantly, verse 2 tells us, are being washed. And that means that the fishermen have come to the end, and Simon tells him that in a minute. They've been fishing all night and they've caught nothing. The nets are being hung up to dry because they've been washed. They're done working for the day. Jesus, having spoken to these crowds then turns to Simon that's in the boat with him and says, put out into the deep water, put out into the deep water and let your nets down. Jesus sees an opportunity. Simon sees a problem. Simon's reply is almost a no to Jesus. Elsewhere, in fact, he's the only person who does say no to Jesus. But the request that Jesus is making of him doesn't make sense. And so Simon tells Jesus, Master, he says, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, brackets, and we've been listening to you all day. Dot, dot, dot. But then there's a crucial response where Simon says something that is so often the hinge point on whether we are going to follow Jesus or not, whether we're going to be a disciple of Jesus or not, whether we're going to do what Jesus tells us to or not. Simon says, but because you say so. 
But because you say so, Simon agrees. Even though Jesus is a carpenter turned preacher, and he's telling Simon, who is an expert fisherman, where and how to fish, and Simon together with James and John and the sons of Zebedee and his brother, perhaps owned and were part of one of the largest fishing companies in the Middle East. There's historical evidence to show that they had perhaps the license to export to the temple. They supplied the temple with fish, and they exported fish across the Middle East. So we're not talking somebody with a rod. This is somebody who knows about fishing, who knows about the industry of fishing, who knows and has lived their whole life fishing, and yet Jesus is telling him where and how to fish. And Simon initially says, look, Master, we've worked all night and we've caught nothing, but because you say so, we'll put the nets out. We'll go into the deep water and we'll, we'll put the nets down. And Luke tells us what happens next. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And Simon's response is fascinating. As the boats start to sink, as the nets are incredibly full of fish... Simon turns to Jesus and says, go away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful person. You see, he spent time with Jesus for the last year. He's seen lots of things, and he's heard lots of things. He's listened to Jesus. He's heard stories about sowing and seeds and lamps and mustard seeds. He's seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law. He's seen Jesus calm a storm. He's seen Jesus restore a demonized man on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. He's seen a girl brought back to life and a sick woman healed. But now, Jesus does something right in front of Simon. And Simon experiences the power, the raw power, and the person of who Jesus really is. And when you come face to face with who Jesus really is, you see yourself for who you really are. And that's what Simon does. As he sees who Jesus really is, he says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. As I see who you are, I see who I really am. And I find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't say to Simon, Simon, I didn't need you to tell me that because I know you're a sinful person. Because I've been around you for the last year. I know what you're like. I've heard you speak. I've heard you interact with the other disciples. I've heard you interact with your mother-in-law, even though you asked me to heal her. I've been around you, Simon. I know what you like. Simon, I know you better than you know yourself. I don't need you to tell me that you're a sinful person. And the irony is that, that Simon's response actually is, is, is saying the last thing that he wants. Because what he says is, Jesus, I want you to go. I want you to leave. And the paradox is that's the last thing that Simon wants Jesus to do. You see, Simon all his life has been used to asking for things that he thinks he deserves, like we do. 
But what Simon is experiencing now is two boatloads of fish that are so big that the boats are starting to sink. And what Simon realizes he's experiencing is that he's being given something that he doesn't deserve and hasn't actually asked for. What he's experiencing, perhaps for the first time in his life, is a catch of grace. And it's so typical of who Jesus is and what Jesus does, is that what he gives to Simon is this catch of grace, this unbelievably large catch of fish. Tom Wright, in his commentary on these verses, suggests that we put ourselves in Simon's shoes. He said, imagine yourself going to the place where you spend most of your week. It might be the place where you work. It might be your office. It might be your home. It might be a friendship circle. It might be a place where you spend your leisure time. It might be a hospital. It might be a university. It might be a school. It might be a college. It might be wherever you find yourself for the vast majority of this week. Imagine yourself there and imagine asking Jesus to come to your workplace. To spend time with you where you spend every day. And as he's there with you where you spend most of your time, Jesus then turns to you and asks you to do something just like he asked Simon to do something that seemed pointless, a waste of time, a waste of energy, and effort. And you do it, perhaps like Simon, grumbling under your breath. I don't know why I'm doing this. This will never work. I've tried it before. It doesn't work. And then something happens. Something happens where everything clicks. And you enjoy success on a scale that you've never dreamt of. And Jesus looks you in the eye and says, you and I are going to be working together from now on. That's what's happening to Simon. What would it be like for Jesus, or for you to imagine Jesus, in the place where you will be this week? The place where you will spend the vast majority of your time. Might be where you work. Might be where you play. Might be an office. Might be a hospital. Might be a school. Might be a college. Might be a university. What would it mean if you were to invite Jesus to be there with you? Actually, whether you know it or not, Jesus is already there. What he's waiting for is for you to recognize that fact. And as you recognize that fact, to then ask Jesus to show you what you should think, what you should say, what you should feel, and what you should do. That's what it means to be what we call at Peace and Jesus, a whole life disciple. That where we spend the vast majority of our time is where 
our discipleship of Jesus should be seen most. So what does it mean this week for you and for me to follow Jesus? To be willing to hear what Jesus hears, to say what Jesus wants us to say, to feel what Jesus feels, to think what Jesus thinks, and to do what Jesus wants us to do. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what it means to be a whole life disciple. To realize that following Jesus is fundamentally not about you. But following Jesus, being a Christ follower, being a Christian, is fundamentally about Him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about what we want. It's not about what we hope for. It's not about what we deserve, and it's certainly not about what we demand or expect. But following Jesus is fundamentally about Him. It's about what He wants, about what He hopes for, about what He expects, actually about what He demands and what He deserves. Remind me of an incident that occurred to a friend of mine, Toby. I was at university with Toby a long time ago. And Toby um, is a, a geologist, he's an engineer, um, but he's, in his spare time he also led a church in Leeds. And uh, is an evangelical, charismatic sort of house church. Um, and after about 20, 25 years, Toby began to explore Ignatian spirituality, the sort of dis- disciplines of, of St. Ignatius, more sort of Anglo-Catholic spirituality. And uh, he went to see a nun, because that's what you do, go and see a nun, and ask the nun, or people like Duncan Hughes, um, who's a bit like a nun, um, to explain to you what these sort of things are. And the nun said to him, I want to give you an exercise, an Ignatian exercise, where you think of a Bible story, and where you put yourself into that Bible story. And you start to imagine what it feels like and smells like and what it's like to be in that particular story. And you can go for any story and any character. And Toby chose the story where the woman who has suffered from bleeding for many, many years reaches out and touches the, the edge of the cloak of Jesus. And Toby saw himself in the crowd as, as Jesus walked past and the woman reached out and, and touched the edge of the cloak of Jesus. And as he was, in his imagination, seeing himself in that event and situation and context, and the nun was asking him questions like, what does it feel like, and how hot is it, and what does it smell like, and and, and all that sort of stuff, she asked him this fundamental question, did Jesus do or say anything as Jesus walked past you? And Toby smiled. In fact, Toby laughed. And the nun said to him, why are you laughing? And Toby said, Jesus winked at me. And the nun said, why do you think Jesus winked at you? And Toby said, because I think he was saying, I know more than you do, and I always will. He winked at me, and then he moved on. And actually... 
that is fundamentally the heart of discipleship. It's recognizing that Jesus knows and will always know more than you and I. And it's whether we're willing to trust Him to hand over control of our lives, to surrender our identity, our past, our present, our future to Jesus and say, you know better than I do. And even though you asked me to do something that may seem pointless, just like you asked Simon to put those nets out in the deep water, even though they've been fishing all night and caught nothing, even though they'd done fishing, even though they were hanging their nets out to dry because they'd washed them as a signal that that was the end of the working day, and the best time to catch the fish was at night, and now it was in the middle of the day because you've been preaching for so long, Jesus, just like some of you are feeling now about me, you're still willing to trust him. You're still willing to say that Jesus knows more than you do. And you're still willing to say that because you know more than I do, Jesus, I'm willing to surrender to you. And I'm willing to surrender to you what I feel and what I think and what I know and what I do and what I say because I fundamentally realize that following you, Jesus, is not about me, but it is about you.